Welcome back to another episode of Design Lab. It's a podcast that explores the intersection of design and health. I am your host, Bon Koo. Our guest today is Dr. Sandeep Jahar. He has written several best-selling books. His latest book is called My Father's Brain. It was published in April 2023. It's a memoir of his relationship with his father as he succumbed to dementia. In the book, Jahar sets his father's descent into Alzheimer's alongside his own journey toward understanding his father's disease. Sandeep is a practicing physician, and he writes regularly for the opinion section of the New York Times. His TED Talk on the emotional heart was one of the most watched TED Talks of 2019. Visit our website at designlabpod.com. There you can learn more about the guests and subscribe to our newsletter. That way, our producer, Rob Leglisi, will send you show notes each week, and he has this really nice reflection on each episode. I read them every week. They're awesome. Sign up right there on our website. And if you want to reach out to us, reach out to me on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U or on Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U, and rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please, please, please give us five stars. That's how you support the show. And if you want to make us really happy, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share an episode with a friend or colleague. Now my conversation with Sandeep Jahar. Dr. Sandeep Jahar, welcome to Design Lab. I'm thrilled to be talking about your new book today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you. Before we talk about your book, My Father's Brain, I'm really curious to know, you're a full-time practicing physician, you're a cardiologist, but like, how do you find time to write and why do you write? Hmm. Well, I write because it helps me clarify my thinking, really. Hmm. I started writing, sort of keeping a journal during internship where I'd write about issues that came up in the hospital that created some sort of puzzlement or some kind of conundrum in my mind. And I just wanted to hold on to those experiences because I think they help you grow mm. when you think about them afterward and think about your reactions and and what they meant. An internship is a great time to start writing because it's a time of firsts. You're, as you, you all know, it's when you experience your first call night, your first road trip mm. in, in the hospital, your first death you write your first prescription. I think it's a time that's just very rich for reflection. Mm. So that's really why I started writing. The time issue is I get asked that quite a bit, and I, I don't think I've ever really came, come up with a great answer. You're able to survive on small amount of sleep, probably. <laughs> no, no. I, I, <laughs> I need a full, uh, full night's sleep. Otherwise, I really can't function well. But, you know, I mean, I remember when I was a second-year medical student I was at Washington University in St. Louis, and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch had an internship that I really wanted to accept. It was a journalism internship, and I was, I'd always really been interested in writing when I was growing up, but it would require doing this sort of internship, probably something of order 20 hours a week, and it was second year of med school, and you remember second year, yeah. and you're trying to get ready for your step one boards. And, and I remember I calling my brother and saying, they offer me this internship. What should I do? And and he said, there are many hours in the day. And I didn't quite really understand what he meant. But it turns out I was wasting a lot of time. And 
I accepted the internship and somehow made it work. And I think I've sort of took that lesson and I've just continued with it. And so I find time in sort of unusual ways. Actually, my first book, Intern, I dictated a large portion of it while I was driving between Manhattan and Long Island, the hospital where I work. On the Long Island Expressway. That's what I used to do, too. Totally. totally. <laughs> it's a lot of time in traffic to do Exactly. <laughs> and this was the, the era before uh, driving apps, navigation apps. So you take one wrong turn, you're stuck in bumper to bumper. And, and so I would sort of fill in the time. And these days, like I'll write in the hospital, like in between patients, or if mm. a patient cancels their clinic appointment, I'll find time to do some writing or editing something I've already written or whatever. So you just kind of make the time, you kind of steal time and you just make it work. So is that your creative outlet, writing? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. I'd always been really interested in writing growing up. My father was a scientist, a geneticist, laboratory geneticist. And his favorite saying was non-science is nonsense. He knew I was interested in writing, but he really wanted me to have a sort of pragmatic dimension to my career. So he said, look, it's fine if you want to write, but you know, you need to be a doctor. <laughs> you need to do something sort of, I don't know, the way he saw it, something of substance, something with some stability, security. You know, fortunately I was able to interweave my medical career with a writing career. So mm -hmm. I've been very fortunate. So you have a PhD. So I was like, oh yeah, I thought you had like a PhD in English, but it's actually in physics. So yeah. like, where did the writing come? <laughs> like, how did you fit that in? Like, how did you learn how to write as a trained physicist yeah. and a physician? Well, you know, when I was deciding what to major in as a, you know, at Berkeley, my dad wanted me to go pre-med. And eventually I went to him and I said, dad, I'm sorry, but I've decided I'm not going to do pre-med, but I'm going to major in physics instead. And he was like, yeah, okay, fine, science at least. So that was like the weird culture I grew up in where rebellion was saying no to a career in medicine, but then going into physics. <laughs> and that was, that was kind of the, the immigrant Indian <laughs> culture I grew up in. But I was always interested in writing, and I, I really sort of got into it in a very serendipitous way. I was finishing up, so I, I got my degree, and then I decided to stay on at Berkeley, and, and I did graduate work, and I ended up actually finishing my PhD and then jumped and went to medical school. But during the last sort of year of my PhD, I came across a journalism fellowship, a science journalism fellowship, and mm -hmm. it's called a mass media fellowship. And I, I applied just because I've always been interested in writing and, and I'd already decided at that point that I was going to switch into medicine. And, and I knew of doctor writers, you know, like Oliver yeah. Sacks and Michael Crichton. And of course, before them, Chekhov and Somerset Mom. And so I said, look, maybe I'll be able to do some writing as a doctor. And so I applied for this fellowship and still I shocked that I, I got it. I, I wrote a little, little piece for them. And then I went to Time Magazine and made some contacts and eventually through those contacts reached the, the New York Times and started writing some columns for them right after I finished medical school, when I came to New York to do my internship at New York Hospital. And it's just been that's sort of the story of how I got into writing. There's a lot more to it than that, but that's like the thumbnail version. My Father's Brain is your fourth book, is that right? That's right. Okay. And 
in my research, I realized that I don't even really understand what dementia is. And you write about dementia and how your father had dementia and that journey. Can you talk about what is dementia and what causes dementia? And are there any current treatments for dementia right now? Yeah. So dementia is a condition whereby essentially the brain degenerates. Neurons die, the brain shrinks, synapses, which are the connections between neurons, degenerate, and no one knows what causes it. I mean, there are theories. Alzheimer was a man. He was a German psychiatrist who was also a neuropathologist, and he liked to do microscope work. And he came across a, a patient with this very strange condition that was a dementing condition, meaning that it sort of like breaks the mental capacity of the patient. And, and after she died, he looked at her brain under the microscope and he found these sort of two characteristic signatures of the dementing state. One mm. is plaques and the other are tangles. And they're both sort of misfolded proteins. And so for the longest time, people thought, oh, Dementia is caused by plaques and tangles. Alzheimer's dementia is caused by plaques and tangles. But now, today, we realize that it's much more complicated than that. Drugs that target plaques don't necessarily help patients. In mm. fact, in many cases, hurt patients. Mm. And I think that's what I was taught in medical school like two decades ago, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's still very much open as to what the cause is. And unless you know the cause, you're not going to find a yeah. treatment. And so right now, there are no good treatments for dementia. There's a new drug that was that got accelerated approval by the FDA that is a monoclonal antibody that targets plaques, amyloid plaques. Amyloid is the misfolded protein and mm -hmm. clears out the plaques. This is the first anti-amyloid drug that actually resulted in some cognitive benefit. Mm -hmm. All the others did not. So it sort of remains to be seen, and, and the, the benefit is fairly marginal. So it remains to be seen whether this drug is really going to take hold, but the overall benefit is still fairly slight. So we still need to do more research and figure out what's causing the disease. Is it inflammation, in which case anti-inflammatory drugs might help? Is it viruses, in which case antiviral mm. medications might help? Or is it just plaques and tangles and, and we need better drugs that target the plaques and tangles? Or is it something you know entirely different? We don't know at this point. You are a cardiologist, not a neurologist. Why did you decide to write this book? Because I was caring for my father and he went through a very difficult illness. And mm. uh, the family journeyed with him through that illness. And I, as his son, went through the caregiving. Yeah. And I was fairly unequipped to navigate this journey. I, we were just sort of paddling in. Even as a physician. And, Absolutely. And you have other physicians in your family too, yeah. correct? Yeah, my, my brother's a physician. Yeah. My sister has some background in psychology. We weren't uneducated, but we didn't really understand dementia. And I think mm. a lot of doctors don't. A lot of people don't. Yeah, And I wrote the book that I needed 
that would have helped me. Mm. So it's both a sort of personal tale, a fairly wrenching, harrowing tale of what happens to a person and a family grappling with this this horrible disease. But it's also about the history and science of the brain and memory and, and brain degeneration and what causes it and what we know, what we don't know, mm. what the treatments are. And so it's sort of, it's personal writing. It's a memoir, but it has plenty of like history and science to satisfy the nonfiction reader. What was it like to be both a physician and a caregiver at the same time? Those are two full-time jobs. Yeah. I mean, I wrote in the book that being elderly and sick in this country is terrifying. Mm -hmm. Caring for an elderly and sick relative is a full-time job. Mm -hmm. Very much that. And there was just perpetual daily compromises. Not being able to visit my father because I had work to do and sometimes having to leave the hospital to help care for him or deal with an emergency. I mean, anyone who's been a caregiver or is a caregiver today knows what I'm talking about. It's yeah. just a very profoundly challenging journey, and it results in a lot of tension and, frankly, a loss of job productivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was tough. I can't even imagine my... I have a daughter, and she recently tore her ACL, had to get surgery, and I've been pretty much driving into doctor's appointments and PT and helping to rehab. And yeah. I feel my job productivity has decreased and sure. from an elective 45 minute surgery, but with the rehab and I'm like thinking, this is hard to do, like driving around to doctor's appointments and physical therapy. I don't know how people do it in this country when, and especially if you have someone who's elderly and sick, as you say. What are, do you have some thoughts on how we can redesign caregiving in the U.S.? And are there other countries that might do it better than we do or have other approaches to caregiving? I mean, there's so many aspects of this question. I mean, one is that we just don't do a very good job, job with elder care in this country. We spend way too much money caring for people in the last six months of life. And a lot of that money could be better spent in supporting people before they reach the final stages and supporting their caregivers. Just for dementia care alone, we spent $200 billion a year, and Medicare covers only $11 billion. Wait, $200 billion? A year, and Medicare covers $11 billion. Oh my gosh. So what is that? About 5%. 95% of the costs of dementia care in this country are borne by families. And th- those costs include wheelchairs, hiring private caregivers, and then loss of economic productivity. Mm. I mean, so you, you add all that in, it's horribly expensive. So I think that's one issue. Also in this country, when we deal with people with dementia, we very often just put them in a nursing home or a locked memory unit. Yeah. Other countries are doing things differently. I did a lot of traveling, or some traveling, researching this book. Mm-hmm. I went to the Netherlands and visited a dementia village. Oh, in, I heard about this village. Yeah, just outside of Amsterdam. And in this village, there's a sort of trade-off in dementia care between security and autonomy, right? We don't want people to wander and fall and break their hip. 
So very often we will lock people up in these memory units and keep them confined to a wheelchair or their bed so they don't fall and break their hip. Yeah. In this particular village in the Netherlands, they let people wander. You know, it's a, it's a closed space. There's only one entrance and exit. And you have all these caretakers who work the grounds, working as gardeners or staffing this. They have a sort of supermarket. They have a cafe where mm. patients, residents can go to have a coffee or have a drink or something. So I think a just much more humane way mm. of managing patients who have dementia. But, you know, there are some issues with it as well. I mean, just the idea of having caretakers posing as gardeners. I remember walking through this place and thinking, isn't this kind of fake? Isn't this kind of just a stage set like the Truman Show? Wait, they're literally like acting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it's a fascinating idea. I mean, they are doing some gardening. I mean, the, the grounds <laughs> have to be have to have basic upkeep, but they have a classical music room. They have a cafe. And they employ what has been called, what I wrote recently in the New York Times, a therapeutic deception. Yeah. The idea that you don't always have to be truthful to someone with dementia, especially if it causes them anguish or pain. So if someone is asking you, when is my daughter going to visit? My guide there said, you just tell them, oh, she'll be coming later. And very often, the person with dementia will forget. Mm. Or if they say, I want to go home, and you know they can never go home, then you let them wait at a bus stop fake bus stop until they get tired and forget what they're waiting for. And then they go back to their residential unit. There are moral issues associated with that. But I came to understand what the rationale was for that kind of approach. Mm. It's a controversial approach because that's not relatively new, right? This therapeutic deception. Yeah. I mean, the prevailing approach to managing patients with dementia was called reality orientation. So person says, where's my wife? And you tell the person, your wife died. She died four years ago. And here's a piece of paper reminding you that your wife has died. But then the person loses the piece of paper and they ask again, what do you tell them? Do you make them re-experience the grief? Or do you tell them, well, your wife's just not here right now, but she'll come later or something like mm. that. So it, it is a controversial approach, but one that I became a lot more sympathetic to as I took care of my dad and realized that he just wasn't there mentally to be able to enter my reality. Yeah. You wrote about how you yourself had to practice therapeutic deception at times. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he had a caregiver and he didn't want her to be paid. And I used to tell him, dad, come on, you're not crazy you know that if someone works, you have to pay them, right? And, and then he'd kind of understand. And then later he'd say, well, why is she being paid? And and then eventually he became so angry with this, the idea of paying her that he kicked her out. Mm. And then it, it dawned on me, if I don't assuage this anxiety of his by just telling him what he wants to hear, then he's going to end up in a locked memory unit, mm. you know? And so I said, okay. And one day, after he kicked her out, I went to his house and I describe all this in the book and set up the scene. But yeah, I said, look, she's going to work for free. And that relaxed him. And mm. he said, okay, great. Have her come in. So there are these trade-offs. 
when you're dealing with someone with dementia, some people kind of understand it from a commonsensical point of view. I approached it with a more sort of morally principled point of view, and that was kind of counterproductive, mm -hmm. actually, because there's no place for that kind of principle when you're dealing with something that's just creating so much anguish yeah. in a loved one. I can imagine it was difficult because, you know, as doctors were trained not to be paternalistic and to tell patients everything and not yeah. to withhold information. Right. But withholding information was probably the best thing for the patient being your dad at that Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Yeah. Some people call it lying. It's lying by omission rather than commission. Mm. And there is a distinction, I think. Mm -hmm. I wasn't kind of warping his reality as much as just validating what his reality had become. Mm. You and I both come from cultures. You know, I'm Korean where caring for parents is an active thing. We generally don't outsource it. And was that hard for you with this? Because you cared for your dad at home. He did not go to one yep. of these dimension units, correct? That's right. Yeah. I mean, it was terribly hard. In the South Asian culture, the responsibility for parental caregiving usually falls on the sons. Mm -hmm. And truth be told, not the sons, but the sons' wives. Yeah. And I think my sister was better equipped, but my parents, their culture wouldn't allow them to accept help from a daughter and a son-in-law. So they moved to Long Island to live near me and my brother and they were out in the midwest yes okay. yeah yeah they were living in fargo north dakota mm. my, my father was a professor at north dakota state and so they moved out here and then my brother and i were both full-time practicing physicians we had our own families our own spouses our own children and yeah it was a, a weird place that i sort of said to say in the book that there's something called the triple point of water where it's that temperature and pressure where water coexists as a solid liquid and gas, mm -hmm. all in equilibrium. And that's kind of the place where I ended up, where my familiar roles were father to my children, spouse to my wife, and son to my parents. Mm -hmm. And all those roles were in this sort of uneasy equilibrium, and it was a constant daily balancing you know, figure out where to spend your time. With the current state of dementia care, the way that you provided care to your dad, is that the ideal model What that exists in the U.S. now? Because we don't have these dementia villages like they do in the Netherlands. Like, yeah. were there other options that were good options for you and your family? Not really. I mean, dementia villages are coming to the United States. There are villages that are being planned. There's one in Ohio. There's one planned in Atlanta. There's something in San Diego. So they're coming. But really, the the prevailing sort of care model is assisted living until a person gets really impaired, and then it's a nursing home. Can you describe what assisted living is? Yeah, assisted living is persons still can do some things. So they live maybe in an apartment in a resident or a, a unit in a residential facility, but they have some independence and they get help from on-site nurses 
who may administer medications. They can maybe sometimes have their meals made for them. So yeah, it's assistance with being relatively independent. And then there's the nursing home model where the person becomes so dependent on help that that they have to be in a nursing home and then their autonomy is severely curtailed. We didn't want either of those approaches, or I should say I didn't want it. My siblings were a little more practical and thought, well, yeah, I mean, you know, the way dad is, he's going to end up in a nursing home. But I felt it very strongly that I wanted to keep him in his own home. And fortunately, we had resources to hire an aide who would take care of him while my brother and I were, were working. But not every family has that. Yeah. And, and I think I struggle to fathom how people get through it without that kind of help. It's probably likely that every one of us listening will know someone with dementia or actually care someone care for someone with dementia nor someone who is a caregiver for someone with dementia do you feel like your book would be a primer for us to get some practical tips on how to approach this i mean yeah very much i mean i wrote the book that i wanted when i was going through this mm. not just a book that describes what's frankly a pretty wrenching personal story but also provides enough science about the brain that it sort of gives you a neurological script as to what's going to happen. Alzheimer's, which is a kind of dementia, but the most common form of dementia, usually starts in a part of the brain that processes memories, and then it can move to the part of the brain that processes emotions. So people very often in the initial stages of Alzheimer's can't remember what they had for lunch, and then they start to have more sort of behavioral manifestations, violent outbursts and so on. And then they lose judgment and self-awareness. You can kind of track those things by understanding how the disease progresses in the brain. And so part of what I wanted to do was was give that sort of science and and history as well so that... Because it'll probably help readers recognize dementia that's not recognized in friends or family members. Right. And also confer some patience the most difficult time I had was when I just didn't understand what was going on. It just seemed, it almost seemed like my dad was like putting me on. Yeah. Like, you can't be serious here. And you're a pretty smart guy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. But I, I was as ill-equipped as I've ever been in any aspect of medicine. Wow. And I think most of us are. And the thing is that dementia is coming. It's a tidal wave. It's it's going to wash over us and we need to be prepared. Mm. We should probably make it recommended reading in medical school. I'm going to have my medical students read it in Philadelphia. <laughs> one question I love to ask our guests is if one of our readers were to come out and visit you, where would you take them out to eat? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm a sort of self-anointed foodie. <laughs> <laughs> I love to eat good food. I mean, we were just talking about that restaurant, that Israeli restaurant in Philly yeah, that Zahab, I just went to. Yeah. Zahab. Uh-huh. I just went to when I was out to do a book event at Headhouse Books. I like sort of places where it's it's just all about the food. Yeah. And not so much about the ambiance or the presentation, the decor or whatever. There's a great place. Actually, I just went to a place called Claro. It's a Michelin star, hole in the wall, really amazingly inventive Mexican food. It's in Brooklyn? Yeah. Okay. 
Brooklyn. That's right. Amazing. Well, yeah. I love those type of places. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to that, as, as well as <laughs> yeah. a link to your your amazing book. Thank you for writing that. I highly recommend it to everyone listening because we, as you said, are going to be impacted by dementia and it's a tidal wave. So we need to be prepared and design our response to it in our, in yeah. our lives. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was, it was a great conversation. Thank you. To learn more about Sandeep and his work, visit his website at sandeepjauhar.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at sjauhar. In the show notes, there'll be a link for you to purchase his book. Highly, highly recommend it. Design Lab is produced by Rob Puglisi, editing by Fernando K. Rose. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. See you next week.